Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Christmas in the First Testament. So turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Christmas in Exodus. Very close to the beginning of the book of Exodus, well, in the eighth verse of chapter one, there's a sentence that lays out the drama of the entire book. It simply says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Historians have tried to identify this king, and I myself find this to be a fascinating discussion. You know, here in my view is the best possible answer to the question of who this man was and why it is that the policy of benevolence toward Israel changed so dramatically. Of course, the answer to that question all depends on how you date the actual sojourn out of Egypt. From 2 Kings 6 verse 1, it's usual for Bible-believing scholars to date the Exodus to the year 1445 BC. Now, to explain why 2 Kings 6 1 leads us to a date of the Exodus, 1445, well, I'm going to leave that to you, if you're interested, to research that matter completely. But for the sake of time, let me just begin with the assumption that Israel left Egypt in 1445 BC. Now, let's go on to Exodus 12 40 to 41, where it says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So that would mean that Jacob and his family entered Egypt in 1875 BC. And so sometime in those 430 years, Israel went from being a people situated in the very best of Egypt, growing in numbers, growing in prosperity, living the good life, to a people who suddenly became enslaved and reduced to servitude. What's to account for that? Well, Egyptologists often point to a remarkable period in Israel's history. Sometime in the mid-1600s BC, but about 200 years after Israel entered Egypt, a Semitic people group invaded Egypt and conquered the land. They remained in power for about 100 years, and those people were called the Hyksos. Although the Bible doesn't mention this group of people, it seems quite possible, perhaps even probable, that the king who didn't know Joseph was not an Egyptian at all, but rather a Hyksos ruler. This king would have had no knowledge of Joseph and the amazing role that he had played in ensuring that Egypt didn't starve to death in an unusual period of horrifying famine. This ruler would have shown no gratefulness. He was an invader. You know, some modern archaeologists suggest that the Hyksos first came to Egypt as immigrants and then grew powerful and then overthrew the land. Well, and seeing this large number of people, the Israelites, who sided with the Egyptians, the king of the Hyksos simply enslaved them. But eventually, after a hundred years, the Egyptians were able to expel the Hyksos, but it would seem that the policy of enslavement simply continued. After falling to a foreign threat in the first place, Egypt was never going to share their land with foreigners again. And so Israel remained as slaves. And that's the situation in which the book of Exodus opens. God's people are going to the promised land. But no, they're not. They have very powerful overlords who insist that they will remain enslaved. And furthermore, Israel was reduced to unskilled labor. I mean, the idea that somehow developed in Hollywood that the Israelites built the pyramids, well, that's patently false. 
The pyramids were ancient. They were some 1,000 years old when Israel first came to Egypt. No, they never built any great enduring structures that one still finds in Egypt to this day. Rather, they were charged with making mud bricks. And mud bricks were either used in the houses of the poor or they were to make ramps so that skilled laborers could build their great structures. From the vision of Abraham that God would make them into a great nation, now to this. Unskilled laborers whose only value lay in the muscles in their arms and in the strength of their backs. They served under the whip of their overlords who cared not a little if any of them lived or died. God never forgets his promises. You know, God had said that he would make Abraham into a great nation and give him his own land and that the whole earth would be blessed through Abraham. This was the hope that the curse of sin would be rolled back through this people. And so God sent his suffering people a deliverer, a savior from their slavery. His name's Moses. His parents were of the tribe of Levi, the tribe whom God set aside to serve him in his sanctuary, his place of worship. But Moses was born in a cruel and unforgiving time. The Egyptians by then were terrified of any population of non-Egyptians increasing among them. And so they made what we would think is almost unimaginable choices. They decided to cull the number of the Israelites. You know, for a period of time, every Israelite male was to be slaughtered. One can only imagine the tears and the anguish and the helpless devastation that was felt in almost every single Israelite family. Moses was born in such a time. We're talking about Christmas in Exodus, and we would be amiss if we didn't compare the circumstances of Moses' birth to the circumstances of Jesus' birth. You know, Jesus was born during the time of Roman occupation in Israel. Rome had gone from a republic to an empire, and the very first emperor was Augustus. Indeed, Luke tells us that in those days after Jesus was conceived, but before he was born, a decree had gone out from Caesar Augustus that the entire Roman world should be registered. As to why Caesar wanted such a registration, well, it would seem that he wanted precise information on all peoples, probably for both the purpose of taxation and to assess various areas of strength. At any rate, Luke also mentions that these were the days of King Herod. And that one line found in Luke 1.5 is extremely important. We know that there were a number of different men all named Herod, but this one, this one is also known as Herod the Great. We know that Herod the Great, in order to expand his power base in Rome, had, as they say, well, he'd backed the wrong horse. Augustus had fought against Mark Antony for power of the empire, and Herod had backed Mark Antony only to find out he was wrong. And in a panic, he traveled to Rome pretty much on bended knee and in pleas of mercy and actually confessed his error and sought the favor of Augustus, and somehow he got it. He returned to Israel and became fanatical about his power. Serving under the Romans, he would allow no one to challenge his leadership. At one point in time, Augustus had said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son. And that's because Herod had killed one of his wives, Miriam, who by all accounts, he was deeply in love with. He also killed her two sons, his children, and then killed Miriam's brother, her mother, and other members of her family, simply because he suspected them. But in spite of his cruelty, Herod was a great builder, and Augustus needed him to control the always problematic Jews. Herod was just the man for him, but Herod showed no mercy to anyone who would cross him. 
And so when the Magi from the East showed up in Jerusalem asking, where is the new king born of the Jews? Herod went into immediate action. As we know, he massacred all the boys in Bethlehem in order to kill just one who might threaten his rule. See, in that sense, Moses and Jesus share a very similar birth account. From the time of their birth, they were marked for death. It reminds us that when God sends a savior into the world, Satan always knows what's at stake. Satan wants no one to set God's people free from their slavery to sin, and so he deals in death. We can't do a full review of the entire book of Exodus, but we should notice that messianic themes do pervade this book. Yes, Moses is to be the deliverer of his people, a forerunner to the one who will deliver his people from sin and eventually from death itself. But let's get back to Moses. His life can be divided into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years, he lives in luxury, in the wealth of Egypt's 18th dynasty. It was a remarkable time. You know, as an example, King Tut, who, by the way, has nothing to do with Moses, but was one of the rulers of the 18th dynasty, well, it tells us something of the wealth in those days. The walls of his tomb were covered in gold, and indeed his coffin was made of 240 pounds of gold. Gold and wealth flowed in abundance. I remember staring at Tut's golden mask over his face in the Museum of Cairo, and I must say, it's one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. You know, Moses lived in two worlds. Clearly, during his first 40 years, he had much contact with his biological family. From them, he heard of Abraham and the eternal promises of God. But he also was educated along with Egypt's royalty. The world was his oyster. He could have anything that money could buy. But according to Hebrews 11.25, Moses made a choice. He chose to be mistreated with a people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In that way, Moses was remarkably like Jesus. And as Jesus was fasting and praying in the wilderness, Satan came to him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and then made him a breathtaking promise. He said, I'm going to give all of this to you if you'll worship me. And then Jesus, quoting Moses, simply said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus also rejected the pleasures of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin and chose to give himself to delivering his people. The Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. An Advent Celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, Let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The major drama of the book of Exodus is the demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. And after having lived in Midian for some 40 years, Moses is now in the third stage of his life. 
God has come to him and called him to go and deliver his people. And Moses is reluctant, but God is God. Moses goes and, as we know, at God's command, delivers a series of nine plagues on the Egyptians. The Egyptian economy is in ruins, and the key advisors tell Pharaoh he must let the people go. But Pharaoh is not willing to comply. And so comes the final and ultimate plague. Every firstborn in Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, to the firstborn of all the cattle. And you might think at this time that the Israelites would immediately be exempt. I mean, after all, the entire drama has been about their freedom and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. But it's not so simple. Many years later, the prophet Ezekiel described with great accuracy the national life of Israel that was present during the time of slavery in Egypt. And here I'm reading Ezekiel 20, verses 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. And so if in telling the story of Israel and Egypt, you know, we tell a story of the good guys versus the bad guys, that's wrong. Ezekiel tells us what we learn in bits and pieces from the entire book of Exodus. Israel was just as idolatrous as were the Egyptians. That's true. They had a story of the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But they, just like Moses, had the competing stories of the Egyptian creation myths and the multitudes of their gods. They had a god of the sun and the goddess of the sky. They had gods and goddesses of everything, from the Nile to the deities overseeing childbirth. And on and on went their gods. Indeed, the ten plagues are a remarkable denunciation of the gods of Egypt. For instance, Happy was the god of the Nile, and Moses turned those fertile waters into blood. Hecate was the Egyptian goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. But Moses caused frogs to come out of the Nile that rendered her power absolutely useless. Every single plague showed that the God of Israel was the only true God, and all the deities and idols of Egypt were but a sham. Well now, since the plague showed the impotence of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, what then, I might ask, were the Israelites doing, building a golden calf idol in the desert? You know, I saw one such calf idol at the Cairo Museum, and I have no doubt What the Israelites were doing as Moses came up on Mount Sinai was that they were recreating that with which they had become comfortable. The Israelites might have been slaves, but it's also true that in their hearts, they had become a lover of the Egyptian deities. And that's what Ezekiel described. Even after the Exodus, none of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on. They utterly refused to forsake these deities. In their hearts, they delighted in them. 
Well, if that's the case, why is it that God would spare Israel? Is this merely a racial thing? Since you're Abraham's physical descendant, you get a pass. No, that's not the case. Consider what has to occur for Israel to get a pass on the day when a messenger of death came to Egypt. I'm reading Exodus 12, 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And that's the difference between the damned and those that were spared. Now, not a matter of moral character, but rather the difference comes down to but one thing. Those who were spared have the blood of the Passover lamb applied to the doorposts and the support beams of the door frames of their houses, and that was it. That's the only difference. You could be an Israelite, but if you had no blood on your door, the messenger of death would visit your house. It's but the blood that makes the difference. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the Passover cup in his hands and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is to say, the Passover story would be told all over again for a new group of people. Just like the Israelites, those who have come to Christ and who will escape the final judgment do not say, look at me, I'm morally superior to all others. We're never going to say that. Rather, for all eternity, we're going to say, the only reason I found mercy on Judgment Day was that the blood of the crucified Passover lamb was applied to the doorframe of my life, and thus the messenger of judgment passed over me. In the time of Moses, Moses could only order that lambs be slaughtered, but this is just one way in which Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. Jesus would be the lamb that was slaughtered so that his people could go to the promised land. Think again about the difference between baby Moses and baby Jesus. Both were born to save their people. But Moses could only order that a symbol be put on the houses, and it was only a symbol. In the end, the people would be delivered, but they would be unconverted as before. And by the end of Moses' life, in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, Moses would say, But to this day, The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But Jesus is greater than Moses. He has replaced the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He has given a heart that understands and eyes to see and ears that do hear. His blood applied to the lives of all who believe not only rests on the doorframe and the lentil, it enters into the inner being of our lives. We need in our study of Exodus to move to Mount Sinai now. God had designed that for two years Israel would encamp at the very foot of the mountain where Moses had encountered God in the first place. Now, how would they survive in such a wasteland? Well, Exodus 16 verse 35 says that Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. But, says John 6, Moses only gave them manna, and yet in the end they still died in that horrible wilderness. 
But Jesus is the bread of God that comes down from heaven, from which if any person eats, that person will not die, but have eternal life. Now let's come to Exodus 20. Moses goes up the mountain of God and then returns with the tablets of the Ten Commandments that declare God's righteousness. I have to reflect on Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and Jesus standing on that small mountain outside of the Sea of Galilee, giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. You've not understood Moses well enough, he said. You think you've not committed adultery, but if you harbor lust in your heart, the adultery lives deeply inside of you. And you think you've not murdered, but if you harbor hatred and bitterness in your heart, the murder lies within you. In the end, we must come to a conclusion. The law that God had given through his servant Moses was a good and perfect law. Nothing wrong with the law, but there was something wrong in the hearts of those who heard. And furthermore, it's also true that Moses had delivered them from Egypt, but Egypt continued to live in their hearts. Physically, they were free, and yet inwardly, they were as chained as they had always been. And there's the contrast. Two babies, both born to set their people free. Two babies, both hunted to be killed. Two babies, both the savior of their people. But it's here where the similarities end. All Moses could do was to point to the need of a greater salvation. And Jesus, well now, the babe that was born in the manger is that greater salvation. Moses introduced Passover, but Jesus is the embodiment of the Passover. Moses led the people out, but Jesus is the way out of sin and death. And so as we honor baby Moses, and yet we worship baby Jesus, he is our greater exodus. Thanks so much, John. John, let me ask you this. Is it true to say that rather than the New Testament being a departure from the First or the Old Testament, that what's really exciting is that the New Testament is actually a fulfillment of the First? Yeah, I, you know, this is one of the reasons I love the term First Testament over Old Testament. You, know, you can think Old Testament, we sometimes think about an old fridge, you know, an old computer, old car, whatever it is, it's outdated and now the new is better. But rather, I think that has given some people the idea that the Old Testament is outdated. It's not. It's the First Testament. It's preparatory, but it also gives meaning to everything we read about in the New Testament. Without the First Testament, we can't understand the New Testament. Indeed, the First Testament provides context. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Ricardo wrote, Thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth, and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute. All praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.